0: Anna Soper and this is Teen People. If you're between the ages of, let's say, 28 and 40 something, you might remember Teen People magazine. A subsidiary of People magazine, Teen People featured celebrity interviews, fashion and beauty editorials, and the stories of ordinary teens from across the U.S. and beyond. Teen People profiled iconic celebrities like Beyoncé, Rihanna, Kanye, Britney, and more. Lauren Hill graced the cover, as did Natalie Portman and Jennifer Love Hewitt. This was the era of boy bands like NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, who all appeared in Teen People over the years. The magazine mimicked its parent publication, with Sexiest People and Best Dressed lists, And it also covered some of the most meaningful stories of that time, including the stories of those who survived the Columbine Massacre. In some ways, the magazine anticipated today's cultural and social context, publishing first-person narratives of gender-fluid teens and newcomers to America. Published between 1998 and 2006, teen people profiled young athletes, gifted writers, musicians, and artists. These are people like me, and maybe like you, Who came of age during the Y2K era. We saw the Twin Towers fall in real time, watched our leaders send soldiers to war, and took our first steps into adulthood as the stock markets crashed. Now, in our 30s and 40s, we face a challenge unlike any we might have imagined for ourselves. This is a time for stories, and in this podcast, I'll share the stories of those who appeared in the pages of Teen People. First, I'll start with my story. A couple of years ago, I bought my first house. When I unpacked my boxes, I found a stash of Teen People magazines dating back 20 years. As I flipped through these old issues, I realized each of these teenagers was now as old as I was. Were they buying their first houses? Were they married? How many had children? How many had paid off their student loans? Were they working? Were they happy? I knew most of these people would have a digital fingerprint, And as a librarian, I know my way around a search engine. I wondered how many I could find, so I began searching, sitting down with my laptop, one magazine at a time. Lo and behold, I found them. So many of them. Artists, physicians, real estate agents, even a registered sex offender. All had appeared in teen people in their youth. My search uncovered as much success as tragedy. Just two days earlier, one of these teen people died from a gas leak in his New Mexico home. I found several articles covering the accident, each one updating the last with fresh information. As I settled into my new home, his short life had ended, along with those of his children. I knew then that this project had urgency, and yet I sat on it. What can I say? I've got a full-time job and a mortgage. I wanted to make a documentary, but I'm not a filmmaker. But as a new decade dawned, I told myself I wanted to do something with this idea this year. I think you can guess what happened next. As Canada locked down and our border closed, I knew my dreams of traveling around the U.S. would not materialize. Not now, anyway. So I bought a microphone and sent an email to Karen Levis. When she was in her early 20s, Karen appeared in the pages of Teen People, modeling a very fetching shade of red lipstick. Today, Karen is the author of several books, including the award-winning picture book Ida Always, which the New York Times Book Review called an example of children's books at their best. Her latest, This Way Charlie, received a starred review in School Library Journal. Karen is a professor at NYU and the New School's Creative Writing MFA program, where she is the Children's and YA coordinator. She teaches workshops in creative writing and public speaking, And has also worked as a facilitator of loss and bereavement groups for children. I spoke with her recently on Zoom. Hi, can you hear me? I might have to.
1: Hold on,
0: I might have to unmute you or something like that. Ah. Oh, wait, I hear you now.
1: Oh, now? Yeah? Okay.
0: Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me.
1: Yeah, it's fun for. This is, I mean, I was like. I I dialed my mom. I was like, "Hey, do you do? You, can you like find any of my Teen People <laughs> magazines?" So I haven't gotten to go up and get them from her yet. But um, but she sent me a couple things. I mean, it's so funny. How did you even find my name associated with it? That is what I'm fascinated by. So I have it here, and they gave you credit. Oh, you do have that. Okay, <laughs> my one modeling job ever, and I didn't get paid for it. But um. <laughs> but I, it was very memorable. Like I remember in terms of culture, some of the most fascinating conversations I had, basically I had like come up with a mock-up for like what I had wanted to be, was like a better teen magazine for girls. Like, and I had done this whole thing and I had, um, a dear, who's still a dear friend who actually I just heard from, who was, um, a very big deal at Time Inc. Um, his name's Richard Stalli, and he was the journalist for Life Magazine, who actually, his biggest, his most famous thing was that he secured um, the JFK's, the Bruder Files for Life Magazine when he was a younger reporter. And so he was my neighbor and was always really sweet. So when I was interested in doing this, I was like, hey, I did this whole mock-up for like a better magazine for girls because I was just sick of, you know, like the, just the way magazines did. And he was like, funny enough, because he then was a founding editor for People Magazine. And he was like, they're actually launching Teen People next year should I see if I can see if throw your hat in the ring to be an intern or something because I was in college and because uh, no, that's how I ended up there was to like learn about how to do it and also teen people was like the editorial staff was feeling like a lot of them came from I think like YM and Sassy and um a lot of them were great because they wanted to also have a better magazine and less advertising that was like diet pills and you know, that kind of stuff. But so I learned a lot about how that happens, you know, like, and the assumptions that like, it was one of my introductions to sort of systemic patriarchy and systemic racism um, in in a real life way, because I learned about things like there'd never been like a young African-American teen boy on a national magazine of, um, I don't remember the details, but of whatever um, circulation number, you know, it was. um, And female, like African-American models like had not been alone on a cover. And I was learning this from these Lifetime editors. And so it was really interesting to me to like learn that stuff there. And also about them, how these higher-ups are making the decisions of who they think their audience is and what they're into. And it's like clothes diet. There was this particular ad in all the magazines Um, for years. I'd have to look for it. It was the same ad and had all this tiny print. And it was for this one diet pill and had this busty like black and white image of a woman. And it was just, I just always thought that was just so awful. And, um, so they were hopeful that they would be able to track different kinds of advertisers because of, uh, the people name and the circulation that they were starting out with was larger. And so they did start out with, yeah, they were doing interviews of real kids doing like interesting things. Um, and all of that. So when I was there, I, I thought they were doing a lot of actually really exciting things. You know, I just interned in there for like, I don't know, it was probably six weeks over the summer once, a few days a week. I mean, that was like it. Um, but the lips was hysterical. And they were like, we need a mouth. Will you be our lip model? And because they were also like, we don't have to pay her. She's the intern. <laughs> and I was in makeup for that mouth for so long. I'd never, I was like, this is what goes into this? And they're like, oh yeah. And there was like a camera that came right up here.
0: Uh, It looks like they applied multiple coats.
1: I know. I actually, I ran out of time. I should have worn, um, I should have worn red lipstick for (laughs) it. Well,
0: it actually says what color it is. It's Stila in Dominique.
1: Stila in Dominique. Oh my God.
0: The makeup artist describes it as the perfect shade of red, not too orange, guaranteeing a sexy evening look. (gasps) A sexy evening look. That is so funny. Do you think that teen people actually lived up to what you wanted to see in a magazine for girls?
1: So that's a good question because that was the whole reason I joined was because I had made this mock-up um, of, of a magazine being home from college one summer and I have a younger sister. And I was like, I remember like being in the bathtub looking through like, cause I never really read, I was into sassy and YM for a bit. Um, but I was looking at, I think her 17s, her- I don't remember which other ones, you know, whatever, her stack of magazines. And, um, and I was really, you know, at the height of being kind of waking up to that stuff. And I was really looking at it through her influence and how she was reading these magazines about losing weight and getting, you know, and what to wear and boys. And so, um, I had made this whole mock-up of what a good magazine for, you know, young girls could be. And that was how I ended up at teen people. Um, through Richard Stolle. He lived in my building and my first job was being his cat sitter. Uh, and so when I kind of was like, I have this idea for a new magazine. Let's make it. <laughs> he was like, there's a lot that goes into making a magazine. Why don't you intern? <laughs> and they didn't even have a formal internship program. So he always says that all he did was get me an interview. But like when Richard Stolle, I think, asked them to like meet his friend, <laughs> they were like, I guess we're going to have an internship <laughs> program. <laughs> You know, I then went to college and then was in my- you know, so I kind of stopped checking in with it after a while and so um and I remember hearing when they were shuddering and going, "Oh no, you know, but then also thinking that um hearing things like you know i don't know where they ended up going really in the end, but I think when I was there, I felt that they were doing and certainly the the people who were there were really great, and the conversations they were having about what they wanted in the magazine. And how they wanted it um, was um, very positive and to me very hopeful in terms of what they wanted young women. And as I said, like they were really trying to push some of the more patriarchal and systemic, you know, sort of racist um, influences on magazines. They were not always (laughs) successful, but I know they were pushing for things um, to the up and ups that, um, and and that were happening. I think they had a bunch of firsts that I'd have to, you know, I wouldn't want to be incorrect by saying them. I have to look them up. But at the time it had a really good, positive feeling. And, um, and I just thought the, the women I was, I mean, it was, there were men too, but uh, I really do remember the editors and um, assistant editors and that team were all very, very mindful and thoughtful about wanting a different magazine. The like, cool women who were working there were constantly having to sort of fight to get these other things. So I think when I was there, it was like Usher, Usher was like one of the third covers, or it was like one of the best selling covers. And it was like a big deal. You know, there were still sort of a lot more of the typical sorts of things you'd see. I mean, my, my lips (laughs) spread included, right. Um, But they were really doing like they were um, really doing something a little bit different. And it was interesting to me. I mean, I worked, I mean, that's that's a lot to think about. So in the old Time Inc. building, um, it was a very storied building. And I remember thinking it was, you know, I grew up in New York City. So, you know, there's a certain, you know, the city doesn't impress me (laughs) because I'm from there. But that building was especially because Richard Stolle, who was the founding one of the founding editors of People Magazine, he used to once in a while take me to lunch. And on the days he would take me to lunch, he would instruct me I was not to wear jeans because we <laughs> would be going to these sort of like, like these places that were haunts. Um, the club? Yeah, we went to like, you know, the Rainbow Room for lunch. And, and so I got the sort of taste of that, that world but it was, it was neat. But other than that, it was, you know, an office. I remember just thinking it was really amazing to work in this place that, um, when the copy machine, cause that was as an intern, that was, you know, basically what I did a lot of the time. Um, if it broke, I could call somebody and they would just, <laughs> there was a whole floor of tech people. I'd never seen that before. I was very impressed. Um, and the fact checking, I learned a lot about fact checking there. When people ask you, you know, when you're a writer, um, cause I'm a children's picture book writer and people ask you what are jobs that you've done before or what's sort of the silliest thing you ever did on a job. I often say, well, I once had to go fact check the spelling of the Spice Girls names. <laughs> Baby, Pa, 40, you know, but that's because that's how serious every, and, and that was, I was the second fact checker on the spelling. Of the Spice Girls' names, I mean, went through
0: two fact checkers.
1: Everything, everything went through two fact checkers, and I have to say, in today's world, you know, with fake news and social media and things that are unvetted and all the things that, everything that's happened to journalism, Mm -hmm. I that memory is so strong in me about you know how you know the difference between serious journalism and that. You know, really making sure you're getting things right before you allow your readers to read it and take it as truth. So it was a funny memory, but it really, I I thought, also really illustrated how seriously they took um, their and took their young women readers. They're like, we're going to make sure that's how baby is spelt in this context. (laughs) 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 E-M-M-A-B-U-N-T-O-N.
0: I was looking at your website, and uh, you had an origin story for your your work as a, as a children's author. Um, you said, I got hooked on books at age two, when mom kept reading Goodnight Moon and The Very Hungry Caterpillar in her terrific Brooklyn accent. Can you do an impression of your mom reading for us?
1: Oh, yes, I can. I used to, um, I love to imitate the accent, but I used to actually, um, so my her Brooklyn accent which she doesn't have much now, uh, but came from my grandmother, who I love to imitate so much. Uh, her name was Elsie, and she was a kindergarten teacher. And I actually did like a whole show in ninth grade drama class based on being my grandmother. But so my mother, and we actually have a, I have a recording of it. So she would read The Very Hungry Caterpillar, who became a beautiful butterfly. I have the tape of her actually reading to me and I'm interjecting. And, and you know, she says things like cherry pie, uh, unless she gets mad and my mother really pretty much almost never gets mad. Um, you maybe hear a teeny touch of it, but so I love that. I have that, that tape and my mother read to me all the time. She read to me so much and, um, that's why you know it's so important to read to kids you don't want to turn your children all into children's book writers of course because of course not but (laughs) but in terms of it made me so excited and I was a really big reader and um you know I absorbed that and it gives kids you know there's all the science and the research as a librarian I'm sure you know um that it's so important but having those tapes of her reading me the very hungry caterpillar make it really clear because I was about two or something in them wow. and you can hear me what I call and I when I go meet I like to do school visits and I always explain to the little kids I'm like if you're if you're saying the words out loud with me you're reading yes. you know because that's reading and so you can hear me trying to beat her to like say which you know food was coming next <laughs> or to say still hungry you know um and I really felt like I, I joke that I you know, that I thought I wrote that book. But I always tell kids too that, you know, the reader is writing the book. They're adding their imagination and their um and all of, you know, and they're engaging with it in sounds. And so mm-hmm. yeah, so my mother was uh she uh she messed that up. She created a she created a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask how you're doing right now. Um I, thank you. I am personally doing just fine. I'm very uh, grateful and I'm very fortunate. Um, I'm healthy and I'm able to be so. Um, It's definitely, you know, um, strange to be in a city that is so quiet suddenly that's usually quite um, noisy and rambunctious Today it's really. Um, it's sunny out, um, so I took a walk towards. I'm in Brooklyn towards a park, um, and um, people are generally being in my neighborhood, being very careful and wearing things. Um, but I did have like my first sort of more New York talk to one of you know talk to somebody that's more like an acquaintance you just see on the street moments today, and my mood shifted. I woke up pretty uh, just sort of unmotivated and fly today, as I think many of us are, you know, right now. Um, I'm very lucky. I have work. I have all these things, but it's just kind of wake up and you're like, right, we're still here. I still can't go hug my niece and my nephew, you know? Um, And so I said, I need to take a long walk. So I took a long walk with my mask. um, And uh, there's this wonderful woman in uh, the neighborhood who I've really only talked to here and there over the years before, but she was a set designer in theater. She's an older woman, and she has these. And she always creates, uh, has beautiful plants, and creates a beautiful garden in outside her brownstone. And so, distantly, you know, I got to chat with her and catch up. And as soon as that interaction happened, I was like, night and day. I just felt so much more um, normal, and um, and it was just because that's that's I think what everyone's missing about New York City. I mean, there's so many things, <laughs> restaurants and theater and everything like that um but I think also just those chance interactions um mm-hmm. for me anyway so that was that was very nice to have today it was nice. my,
0: my day is good. what's growing in her garden right now
1: she's actually created it's actually something I might I have to ask she's um created just a beautiful flower and stone and plant arrangement that she's actually uh researched through um sort of based on uh, some history in the neighborhood. so it's,
0: That sounds fascinating.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to learning more.
0: Nice, sort of like a garden as like a local history exhibit. Yeah. I've seen people on social media lately talking about grief, and not just the grief that's come from the death or the fear of death, um, but a sort of a grief for the future, We've lost our freedom of movement. Some people have lost their jobs. People are separated from family members. Our routines have changed. You work with kids as a bereavement group facilitator. How do you talk with kids about grief?
1: Yeah, and um, and there's actually the term that I use for that that I learned. Um, so I went back to social work school just a few years ago, actually, and became a licensed social worker. Um, and sort of that's when I started working in the loss and bereavement field. Um, I actually had like prior to that I'd already written and it was just being published um, a book called Ida always that's illustrated by Charles Santoso. And that is the, that's about uh, these two bears in central park. Uh, It was based on their real story and it follows their friendship and their love. And then it follows them through them learning that Ida is ill and goes all the way through how they cope with it and deal with it. And it follows until um, she does die. And then, we see kind of Gus take on that grief. So I actually, that book was coming out and I began to work at a loss and bereavement, um, agency. So I kind of did it backwards. I wrote the book and then I learned everything. Um, so there's bereavement loss, but there is also, um, something that, and I think there's lots of different terms cause it's still like an early sort of field, but called ambiguous loss, right. About these other sorts of losses that are like what I love, I love how you just said that grief for the future. Right. So um, that often comes along with, you know, so that can be completely separate or can actually come along with bereavement loss. Right. So like what you were saying, so like all the things that you thought you were going to do with the person. Right. Um, and right now, even if, as you point out, even if you didn't lose, um, somebody, um, to COVID at the moment, there's, everyone's lost so much, right. We're, we've lost our, routine our normal life our workplaces settings that are very important touch right right now where Mm -hmm. um and the and then there's this added ambiguity of not knowing if and when right other things um and so things like um kids who you know have a parent who's in the military or who's incarcerated right also has that ambiguous loss of separation in that way with kids i think i think the families that i've seen and the educators everyone's just everyone's just like immediately jumped in to try and make the situation as positive and, um, riches and safe as possible for kids. And I think often one of the most important things is that, you know, them seeing, seeing the helpers as everyone likes to say, right. But really seeing that there are people who are trying to do things, um, to help everyone, right? So they have a sense of safety um, is really important. And also letting them know that the big feelings they're having are okay. Um, I think that's one of the big things. And actually, so the book I have that came out now called This Way Charlie, that's also illustrated by Charles Santoso. So it's our sort of a companion. So it's also based on a true story. And this one's about a horse and a goat. And in that they are friends who are also experiencing big changes each individually. So the horse is losing um, his eyesight and Jack is actually making a friend for the first time. And so there's a lot of big feelings. And at one point Jack gets very uh, angry because Charlie nudges him to make friends before he's feeling ready. And so those big feelings kind of, he doesn't know how to navigate and manage them and they come just spewing out of him. And he says something so mean to his like dearest, dearest friend. And, um, that was always an important page for me in the book. And it's interesting that it feels particularly relevant right now. That was actually pointed out to me by, um, a few other people, because right now, um, there's so many feelings and even for kids whose maybe daily life seems like you know, their parents have worked so hard and created a sort of new kind of normal and they're loved and they're fed and they're healthy. Even those kids, right. Are, um, still like absorbing the strangeness and the, and the loss of their friends and the uncertainty and they're seeing their parents. So there's a lot of big feelings. And so they can come out in, you know, behavior and all those sorts of things. And so a big thing is to, I think that can be helpful for kids is letting them know that 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 those moments are okay. And now we're going to unpack it and, you know, think about, you know, go through whatever apologies we need to rethink, you know, whatever we said or whatever we broke or whatever we did, Um, but also letting it, validating it as well and saying that I understand, you know, that there are feelings that are happening that we don't know what to do with right now. So let's, let's, let's figure out what to do with them.
0: And not stigmatizing either,
1: like not saying stop being crazy or you're being too much. Absolutely. And that's like always the case. I just think right now it's just, you know, so extreme. And then you have um, a lot of families who are in really challenging places, right? They don't have the space to, um, you know, to, to, to take time away from their kids and kids away from them. And so there's a lot of... There's a lot of feelings and I think there's a lot of recognition that this is, this is normal. So that it's, you know, like these are abnormal circumstances, right? So um, erratic or impulsive or angry behaviors, like those are actually sort of normal responses to an abnormal circumstance and so it doesn't make it doesn't make it okay you know if we you know to hurt somebody but it makes it understandable and then like you can backtrack and say okay what can we do to navigate this a little bit um, better for all of us Um, uh, and I think you know so in story time I did uh, so I've been starting to do these virtual story times but so I was trying to think of what activity I could do that's interactive and also maybe helpful right now and so I did a very uh, imaginary journey which is a very sort of um, basic and easy and lovely uh, sort of acting game to do with kids where you just take, and I've done it a million times in a million different ways where you're just taking kids on an imaginary journey and you're asking them to engage their senses in, through their imagination. What do you see? What do you smell? So I take them to Charlie and Jack in this way, Charlie's favorite field. Um, and I ask them to tell me what colors flowers are saying. Oh, something flew by, you know, what was there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the end, I ask them to think about what's a place that they miss right now that they can't necessarily go to, um, and invite them to take an imaginary journey there. Right. And then to maybe draw it. And so that's a way to also, um, recognize and engage with these, these losses that we're having right now, um, is to actually like, instead of just sort of saying, Oh my, I wish I could be there, take ourselves there and engage with them in different ways.
0: Where would you go right now if you could?
1: Hmm. I would go to my niece and my nephew and give them big giant hugs right now. And if I could be really, if I want to be extra um, ambitious, I'd say, let's do it at the beach by the ocean.
0: (laughs) Nice. I would be in London, England with my grandfather.
1: Oh, that's lovely. Do you think
0: you're going to write a picture book about this time?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Um, so, well, one thing, uh, I can't talk too much about, but, um, something I'd actually already been working on is, um, you know, and so children's publishing is very, it's, there's always uncertainty for a writer, um, and children's publishing is certainly full of that. There's a lot of like, who knows whether the next book will end up somewhere or not, but, uh, Pro, one of the things i've been working on that is very near and dear to my heart prior to this um actually it it was surprising i was like wow it actually matches um a lot of the things we're talking sort of deals with um separation and ambiguous loss um already it was a completely you know written and conceived of but those were themes that were actually something i was consciously uh trying to tackle in the story um so crossing fingers, that that's something that uh, might come out because I think uh, that one really already speaks to it and I'm kind of re-looking at it, you know, at the moment there. But I also liked it because it's also not particularly about this. Um, I definitely have gotten some emails from people who said, who've asked me, to said like, write about the animals who are out in the playgrounds and it'll be interesting to see what comes out because I think a lot of people will be writing about, you know, this yes. time and we'll see kind of what things come out. Um yeah, so I'm I have a couple things I'm looking at. And since the one I'd already been working on already had those themes, I'm sort of just re-looking at it to see uh, you know, if there's something that I've observed now that gives me just a different and you know, insight and something that I can add to the emotional um themes of that because it was already already there. It's definitely an interesting time because everyone's sort of like if people who are in the middle of novels or like that are supposed to be contemporary realistic fiction are kind of like, what do I do? Right. Um, And, and what will life look like, you know, uh, in the next several years, how, how will we all be affected by this? Um, So the good way to look at it is it's a super interesting time, right. I think for, for writers of all kinds, but especially writers for children and young adults, um, because we think so much about our audience and how there's some very like immediate engagement, even though publishing takes a long time, right? It'll be really interesting to see how it shapes future writers who are kids right now. Um, and not only was, was I at Teen people before, you know, a pandemic obviously, but it was also before, um, September 11th. And so in terms of how much the city, how different the city was then, um, it really was very different in just so many ways. Um, and so it's interesting you know, even when I was just you know recounting like, oh, going out to lunch and thinking about you know the the different kind of security that was in places that's very different now,
0: yeah, the symmetry between then and now um, has been really interesting. Uh, I think um, the president has been using this phrase, the invisible enemy," which reminds me of some of the rhetoric that came out after nine eleven um, and i I think you know we were experiencing something then that we're experiencing now, which is this feeling of insecurity um, and paranoia um, and um, a sense of vulnerability.
1: Yeah. That is, there's a lot of, you know, similarities. I was thinking I was seeing one of my neighbors who's a teenager, right? How, cause, cause I'm, you know, I write picture books. So I think a lot about the young, and my niece and nephew are younger. So I think a lot about that age group, but um, I also have a lot of amazing, you know, writer friends and who are writing for teens. And then I watched one of, you know, the teenagers in my building walk out. I'm thinking, wow, how is this affecting them? And I'm wondering how they're writing about it, actually. Um, So I do know I have a friend who is the editor for a wonderful magazine called Represent. And it's um, all written by and for um, kids who are in the foster care system in New York. And I know, so it just reminded me, I want to check in to see how they're talking about things too. You know, um, and how how they're I wonder how they're transforming fear or reacting to it. But yeah, it's really interesting to see. You know, like like walking into I mean the time Inc. They moved prior to this, you know, and it just um, but that was in Midtown, you know, which um, I'm not in Midtown, so I'm not looking at that out my window. But the city is just um, it's em- it's just empty in a way that's so strange. Yeah. 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 So it'll be interesting to see, but the spirit is still, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky, um, as a children's book author and somebody who, you know, goes to schools and my world is full of a lot of educators and, um, children's book writers. And so, um, a lot of them are very active too, um, in terms of trying to make the world better. And so I'm very grateful to sort of be, and also social workers. And so, um, a lot of what I see in my sort of, you know, my bigger bubble, right, is full of a lot of the helpers and a lot of people who are finding ways to, you know, keep themselves hopeful, but also, um, and are often forced to do that for the sake of, you know, younger, younger people, um, which is really kind of um, a bit of a gift, I think, right now to sort of have to find the, the hope and, uh, and the joys. Where do you
0: think we can find hope now as the pandemic progresses? What's bringing you hope these
1: days? Um, I think the the flip side of uncertainty, right, is that you don't know, uh, you know, depending on sort of each person's natural, I guess, inclination, you can kind of go to the negative version of that or the positive. Because the one thing about living in, in I don't know is that there is possibility, I think, also the the joy of reunions when they're going to come and being able to sort of daydream about that. Um, and for, and I think it's really also just those really, I think what's nice is it's made us, you have to get to small things too. I passed a, an ice cream truck, you know, <laughs> that was out today. And that just felt like, yay, ice cream trucks are like there, you know? Um, and that is a hopeful thing, you know, that sound um, and finding Finding all those things, and also the create. I think also the creativity of everybody, like right now, that you get to see, and how people are coming up with creative ways to stay connected mm-hmm. to the people that they love. Which is similar when you're talking about bereavement loss, right? There's people that relationship is still there, right? Um, and so you're just finding different ways to have it and to have it. And that I've found really hopeful, like just, just the stories that you're either hearing in your own world or the things that are being, you know, passed around the internets about how people are showing up for each other. And, you know, I, you know, calling out birthday things from megaphones, you know, (laughs) across the street or, um, so I think there's a lot of hope in, in realizing how creative, uh, people really are and, in terms of, you know, creativity is one of the things we need for problem solving. So, um, yeah, so I, I find a lot of hope in that.
0: Do you think we can have relationships with people who've gone?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, absolutely. The relationship doesn't stop. Um, it just takes on a different form. I never got to meet my grandfather's um, but both of them had such a strong presence in my grandmother's and my parents' lives that I always felt like I had a relationship with them. And my niece and nephew, they are forming relationships with their uh, great-grandparents that they never met um, already, you know. And it's interesting to watch it because I have a really strong memory of doing that. You know, there's no one way to do it. There's no right way to do it, um, but people stay with us and, and, and they can still be as wonderful and as complicated and as challenging as they might've been. Right. Cause that's the other thing is that it's okay to still have a complicated relationship with somebody who's lost. And that's always important to let kids know too, when you're, when a child has had um, you know, a bereavement loss to, to not only help them honor and celebrate um, the good and the things, but to also validate and, Um, allow and give them permission to also recognize things that might've been challenging Mm -hmm. um, or hard about that, that person or that relationship. It's okay to, to, um, to be happy to let that go. Um, um, Just as, which is just as important as, you know, cherishing and celebrating the wonderful things about the people who, you know, have been very kind and important to us.
0: You were 21 when you appeared in Teen People. What would you tell your 21-year-old self today?
1: Oh, geez. That's a hard one. Um, I would tell my 21 self... I mean, it's hard, right? Because you can't tell your 21... You can't... 21... How do you... I get the question. I can tell you what. I'd have to think really hard how to tell her in a way she'd hear it. (laughs) Right?
0: That's a good distinction.
1: Yeah, because it's so hard cuz you think you know and I find myself telling so I have, you know, I work in a grad student and I'm I'm now, you know, I talk to students who are younger than me and I'm like, so I'm going to say this. I also completely remember what it was like to have somebody kind of like 10 years or however much older than me tell me this and me being like, whatever. But um my 21-year-old self, I would encourage to follow curiosity a lot more and more often and to shed, you know, I mean, it's pretty typical, right. But the self-consciousness and the fear of um, embarrassment, I think was always like a big one for me. I have to say, um, especially, and, and as a woman too, I want to say that actually like, I love, I'm in my forties and I love it. I really do. I feel I feel more comfortable and excited about like my own um, like my body, um, especially since we're talking about like teen magazines and things like that, than I ever did. And so I think I would also be like, in like your body can move, like you are able to do these things. It's, it's you know you're gorgeous, whatever. Um, but just in, enjoy it um, and tr- and try not to overthink the, the things you're unhappy with. We all have things that, you know, um, because I I don't think I even realized how self-conscious I was until I lost it, you know, until that layer kind of fell off a lot more than it had. And then I was like, Oh, I've been like carrying that, you know, just like when, I mean, I grew up in New York city. And so you, you grow up and, you know, I was very young when people started commenting on my body in not great ways when I was young on the street. And so, you know, I would, for years I would have literal, you know, I know what I'm gonna wear outside the bulky, I'm gonna wear the bulky sweater. Cause I'm gonna, maybe that'll help me avoid, you know, that guy in the corner saying something. Um, but then there's this invisible bulky sweater. I think that I was carrying around a long, a lot longer than I think I even realized. So, Karen, you're an
0: author, a teacher, and you're also trained in Zen meditation. Can you lead us in a quick
1: meditation to end this episode? Sure. And what I'm going to do is actually even um, more of just uh, like how to take and check in with your breath. And this is something that is an activity on my website. Um, And I'm giving it a little language that has to do the book this way. Charlie has uh, the goat named Jack um, at one point. He's feeling really anxious and nervous about um, making friends and being in contact with other animals. But he's um, observed that the horse uh, named Charlie, it looks very friendly and also needs a little bit of help getting to know the new place. So he decides to be brave one day. And so since we all need to be a little brave right now, um, one nice way they can always help yourselves is just to connect with your breath. And so one thing I always say is that um, if people are listening right now, if you just find a nice place to either stand where you can feel your feet flat on the floor, or if you're sitting in a chair, just gently rolling your shoulders back into like a comfortable sort of, you just want a sturdy position and feeling that. And then you can just put one hand on your loosely, you know, on your torso and your belly, and you can imagine you're in a field of flowers, which is where Jack and Charlie bring each other, um, and one thing they bond over is a honeysuckle flower, and it has a very sweet smell. And it doesn't matter if you've never smelled it. Use your imagination to imagine any sort of sweet smell that is, that is um, refreshing for you. And so as you breathe in the honeysuckle scent, you're going to breathe in through your nose and let it out. And you're gonna do that three times at your own pace. And as you breathe it in, your hand should pop out just a little bit to show that it's filling with the honeysuckle air. So breathing in, let it out and breathe it in. And you can think of the word brave as you breathe out. And that is just um, a really simple way to reconnect with your breath um, and your bravery. And then you can just sort of let your breath return to its normal, normal pace. And you can open your eyes and know that you can always check in with that if you're feeling that you need to be a little extra peaceful or feel a little extra brave or something.
0: Thank you so much for that. That's wonderful.
1: Thank you for asking me. It's been very fun to think about that time. And, um, and actually, I had sent, you know, the man I was talking about who got, got me, uh, he's in his 90s and um, we've remained friends. And I sent him, he just sent me an email yesterday because I'd sent him the, the book um, and he got it, which is he will get. So this will tickle him to no end.
0: Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Stay safe. You too. Bye. Bye. talking with Karen and hearing her stories. In fact, I was reminded of Nora Efron. So many of her stories seemed like something from a Nora Efron film, right? Like the story about her neighbor, a retired set designer whose brownstone garden is inspired by local history. Or cat-sitting for Richard Stolley, the journalist who acquired the Zapruder film. And when she was guiding us through the honeysuckle breath, I was reminded of that scene in You've Got Mail, which I think is Nora Ephron's best film. There's that scene where Meg Ryan's character is on the subway, and she notices a butterfly fly into the car from the platform. And it rides a few stops, and then gets off at whatever street, and Meg Ryan's character says it will probably go to Bloomingdale's, where it will buy a hat, which it will inevitably come to regret. In the film, I think it is apparent that she is the only person on the subway who has noticed the butterfly. And with the honeysuckle breath process, Karen has given us a tool through which we can notice the butterfly, proverbial or otherwise, or the honeysuckle, or feel that day on the beach by the ocean, irrespective of current conditions. I can't promise you a guided meditation in every episode, but we've had one in this episode, and I thought it was rather nice. I hope you did too. Join me next time for another episode of Teen People. Subscribe and share with your networks using the hashtag teenpeoplepodcast. Until then, I'm Anna Soper. Stay well.